saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning as we come and seek to see something more of the glory of Jesus in your word, we recognize, I recognize that any dullness, any boredom, any disinterest comes not from you, but from our hardness of heart. And so, Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, come. Empower the preaching of your word. Open our eyes, soften our hearts, that we might see Christ and enjoy him all the more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a question for us. And that is, have you ever been going through something and found yourself wondering, does anyone care? Maybe it's something that no one knows about. Maybe it's someone that, or something that no one understands about. And it seems like no one cares. You know, winding back to the clock, when I was in high school, uh, I was kind of the victim of a vicious rumor that was being spread about me. And it seemed like it was spread to everyone. Even members of my family, not in my school, were calling me up, asking me whether this rumor about me was true. And it feels a little bit silly looking back. I mean, I was partly responsible because I teased a bully in the school. And so it kind of serves me right a little bit that he made this rumor up about me. But at the time, I was embarrassed. Uh, Everyone seemed to be talking about me. No one could understand me and my situation. I felt isolated. I felt alone. No one was speaking in my defense or advocating for me at all. You know, the sense of isolation, it's increasingly common in our culture in the West, and not just from COVID as well. It can feel like, as a culture, we're fragmenting along a million different lines. Ethnicity, age, marital status, political persuasion, gender, level of environmental concern, religion, or sexuality. And the more we fragment, the more we feel like we're not represented, like we're not understood, Like no one can relate to our cares or concerns, our lived experience. Like no one can speak on our behalf. And that's true outside of the church. But it can also be equally true inside the church as well. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're a parent. 
Maybe you're a retiree, maybe you're a youth, maybe you're a young adult, maybe from a different ethnicity, maybe you're Asian or African or from the subcontinent or European. It's so easy to feel misunderstood and pushed to the side. Well, if that's how you're feeling, I believe this passage contains some wonderful news for us. Our passage is the only passage in the Bible that looks at the life of the Lord Jesus as a boy. And in the life of this boy king, we will see how the Lord Jesus is already primed to become a representative, an advocate for us, so perfect that it's beyond our full comprehension. You know, in the first letter of John, the Apostle John writes in John chapter 2 verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, an advocate is someone who both understands you and sticks up for you. An advocate is someone who defends you. If you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, The Boy King. And really, we're going to be looking at three different insights our passage gives us into how Jesus, even as a boy, is set to be a wonderful advocate for us. We're going to be looking at his growth into manhood. We're going to be looking at his relationship with the Father. We're going to be looking at his life of submission. But really, the one hope that I have for us that I believe comes from this passage this morning as I've meditated upon it, is that we'd have fresh appreciation for the wonderful advocate we have in this boy king. This is a message in which my hope for us is really, for for most of it, that we just stop and stare at our Lord Jesus as we see what a wonderful advocate he is already. Let's dive right into point number one, his growth into manhood. You know, just by way of context, uh, this biography of Jesus uh, Luke, Luke's gospel, was written by Luke the great physician and companion of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Luke, who collected eyewitness accounts and describes arranging them in an orderly way uh, so that we can know with certainty about Jesus. Now, interestingly, twice in chapter 2, in verses 19 and verses 51... Luke writes that Mary, as a witness, treasured these things in her heart. And as a result, it's likely that our passage is, sweetly, based on her testimony. You know, earlier on, as we heard this morning, uh, the angel Gabriel uh, was sent by God to announce the births of both John the Baptist and Jesus. And true to his message, John and Jesus were born in spectacular fashion. And last week we saw how Jesus was presented by his parents in the temple in accordance with Jewish tradition. And at his presentation, Simeon and Anna, two elderly people filled with the Holy Spirit, announced that this is the long-awaited Messiah. Our passage today, as I've mentioned already, is in fact the only account of Jesus' childhood in all of Scripture. You know, undoubtedly, there were many things 
that the Lord Jesus, the eternal son incarnate, did during his childhood. And yet Luke has selected only this moment for us. Doesn't that make you curious? Doesn't that make you wonder why this passage? You see, there's no accidents with God and his word. It's divinely inspired. Every word is selected. And so there must be something incredibly important that God wants to teach us if this account alone has been preserved for us. Indeed, in our passage today, we'll get a unique glimpse into the true nature of Jesus as both God and man. You see, some 12 years have passed since the wonderful scene at the temple that we saw last week. And Luke comments in the following way in verse 40. Why don't you read it with me again? He says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Jesus is growing, maturing, increasing in wisdom, and the favor of Yahweh is upon him. You know, at the very end of our passage is another very similar statement. Again, read with me again verse 52 of our passage. It says the following. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You know, it'd be so easy just to quickly skip over these two verses. And yet these verses are breathtaking in their significance. These verses, when you stop and consider what Luke is actually saying here, are completely mind-blowing. Firstly, Jesus increased in stature. Luke is saying that Jesus physically grew up like a normal child. You know, one of the joys of being a relatively new dad, a father, is watching my kids grow. Uh, Newborn babies, if you're new to babies, they can't do much. Uh, It basically looks like cry, drink, sleep, cry, poop, cry, sleep, repeat, onwards. I mean, you have to absolutely do everything for them. You have to change the nappies, you have to burp them, feed them, bathe them. You even have to hold their heads so their necks don't wobble all about the place as well. Mary did this for the eternal Son of God. You know, slowly, as babies grow up, they learn new tricks. Um, I remember Elijah was just getting close to being out of roll, and uh, suddenly you'd walk into his room and his cot, and he'd be lying sort of face down, and you'd be like, how did you get there, buddy? Well done, nice trick, can't quite make it all the way over yet. Um, and then over time, they sort of grow in their new tricks, and soon they're rolling, and rolling quite easily, and, and so suddenly you put him in a cot, and you'd find him facing upside down at the other end of the cot, and you think, how did he get there? And it's because he's rolled, and rolled, and rolled, and rolled, and rolled around until he's around the other side. Soon they start sitting up, and at first it's like super dodgy, you know, they giggle, and then they fall over backwards and hit their head and cry, um, Uh, They start crawling before you know it and walking and running. And now Elijah is two years old and that kid is fast. He's been out in the car park numerous times uh, just from turning away from him for a moment. You see, Jesus was fully man. And so he grew up like a normal person. And this is massive in its implications for us. You know, that Jesus grew up like a normal person means he knows what it feels like to be starving from hunger. He knows what it feels like to be freezing cold in winter. He knows what it feels like to be a teenager with the massive highs and the massive lows. He knows what it feels like to be absolutely exhausted after a long day's work. 
He knows what it feels like to be devastated or enraged. He felt pain like anyone else. He grazed his knees. He would have banged his head. He would have had his muscles aching. But this point is probably less controversial for us. I mean, we're used to thinking about Jesus as a baby and as a man. We think about it every Christmas. But here's the point that might be new for us this morning. The passage says, not just that Jesus increased in stature, Jesus grew up physically, but that Jesus increased in wisdom. Jesus was born with a fully human mind. You know, we're used to thinking about Jesus or the baby Jesus as somewhat different from a typical baby. Kind of more like maybe baby Yoda. You know, looks like a baby, but kind of has mad skills and insight as well. And we sing carols that kind of reinforce this, like, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And you just picture this serene child without any tears whatsoever. Baby Jesus, yes, but probably didn't cry, probably meditated or did something like that. (laughs) Baby Jesus, but with the mind of God, is what many of us would unwittingly believe. But here's the problem with that. That perspective is actually an ancient heresy called Apollinarianism. And it was condemned by the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. The incarnation means that the divine son became fully man in every sense. He took on a full human body, a full human mind, and a fully human soul as well. Two natures, divine and man, joined completely in one person. You see, Jesus had to develop like a normal person develops. He had to develop physically, and he had to develop intellectually as well. You know, this is absolutely scandalous to consider. The pre-incarnate Son of God was limitless in his knowledge and his wisdom. You know, it's autumn right now. I'm always thinking about the beautiful leaves, the red leaves on the trees. Jesus, as the pre-incarnate son, would have known every leaf on every tree in the entire world. He would have known their positions at any given time. He would have known not only their positions and coloring at any given time of every tree, of every leaf, but the potential positions and leaves that could have been, that never will be, because of details in this life. He knows the future inside out as the pre-incarnate son. He knows every person on this planet, present and future, the lifespans and moment and every hair on their head. The intricate details of quantum mechanics and supercomputing and technologies yet unknown. And all of this, he surrendered to his father in his incarnation and fully embraced manhood. You know, Kent Hughes writes the following about this in his commentary. He says, The great historic doctrine of the church is that the Son of God became a real man, not just someone who only appeared to be a man. When he was born, God the Son placed the exercise of his all-powerfulness and all-presence and all-knowingness under the direction of God the Father. He did not give up these attributes, but he submitted their exercise in life to the Father's discretion. Though he was sinless, he had a real human body, mind, and emotions, complete 
with their inerrant weaknesses. You know, this church is absolutely critical to see. The Lord Jesus became a man just like us in every way apart from our sinfulness. You know, this is really the deep end of the theological pull. This is one of the great mysteries of our faith. Jesus was born fully God and fully man in every sense, body, mind, and soul. This means he was born with a mind that experienced intellectual development, just like you and me. It means that he had to devote himself to learning the scriptures and prayer, just like we do, and grow in his understanding of God. It also means that he was limited in his understanding to his experience and his human mind, apart from special revelation by the Holy Spirit granted by his father. Philip Graham Riken uh, says the following in his commentary on this on these verses. He says this, These statements stagger the mind. If sometimes we take the incarnation for granted, it can only be because we have not wrestled with its full implications. What infinite condescension it was for the Son of God, or God the Son, to become a man with all the limitations of our humanity except for sin. This too is part of what he suffered for our sake. What gratitude this gives us for the salvation we have in Christ and what encouragement to know that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. There were things that the Lord Jesus had to learn, things that he did not understand all at once, even things he had to take on faith. Our Savior understands what it is like to go through all the growing pains of life. Isn't that incredible? You know, the message of the Bible is that we were made by God to know and love him. And that thousands of years ago, humanity turned its back on God, embraced self-centeredness as a way of life, and that every person deserves punishment. And yet Jesus came to take our place before God and to receive our punishment upon him. He came to be our substitute. And in order to be our substitute, he had to be like us. He had to represent us in every way in order to take our place on the cross. He came to redo life for all of us. He came to live in perfect obedience to God in the way that we all have failed to live. But for that to be possible, he had to become fully man in every sense. In body, in mind, and in soul. Physically, to be born as a baby and grow up like every other person. But also in the mind of a man, at times to trust God with limited knowledge, to genuinely face temptation and display true faith in the Lord. And this is what he achieved perfectly for us in his life. Perfect obedience in every way. And that is how he was able to take our place upon the cross and be the perfect substitute. He offers his perfect life and death in our place for every person who trusts him. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.24 says this. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Now, do you ever wonder if Jesus really gets what you're going through? You know, a broken marriage maybe with hidden wounds. It looks so good from the outside, but inside things are very different. Maybe you're struggling at school with few close friends and you're just feeling really lonely. Maybe you recently received a diagnosis and you're anxious and afraid about the future. 
or with just a few words. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. Luke is helping us see that the divine Son of God fully experienced life and therefore can sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4.14 puts it so well. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. See, Christ, friends, is truly our great representative in that he became fully man and embraced the life just like ours in every way that he might faithfully represent us in what he suffered on the cross. And that's point number one, his growth into manhood. But not just that, not just point number one, but point number two, his relationship with the Father. And don't worry, friends, point number two and three are shorter than point number one, so we're not going to be here all day. Another way we see how Jesus is a perfect advocate in this, even as a boy, in this boy king, is in his relationship with the Father. And it's now that we're going to turn and examine the main story of our passage. So why don't you read with me verses 41 and 42. It says this, Now his parents went from Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. You know, Jesus' parents are again shown to be these wonderful examples of faithfulness to God. You know, according to the Old Testament law, there were three meals uh, or three occasions in which males would have to attend the temple in Jerusalem uh, for three feasts, the Passover, the Feast of Booths, and Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. And Luke is saying that Jesus' family had a tradition of attending every year. It means they were devout. It means that they would make a roughly three to four day journey from Nazareth up to Jerusalem every year. Now Jesus, the passage says, is 12 years old, and that's significant. Because in Jewish tradition, at the age of 13 years of age, uh, you'd be able to be a member of the synagogue uh, and become what's called a son of the commandment, or bar mitzvah, uh, and where you'd come under the law and in many ways be considered like a man. Now, Jesus was coming to the end of his childhood. And it's possible that during this trip, Joseph was preparing Jesus for participation the next year in the Passover feast. You've got to set the scene in your mind a little bit. Jerusalem would have been abuzz with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. The markets would have been filled with the buying and selling of lambs and preparation for food for Passover, with people journeying up to the Temple Mount in order to slaughter a lamb and prepare for the meal. We read on in verses 43 to 45. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. You know, Jesus' family depart home and Jesus decides to remain in Jerusalem it's kind of a parent's worst nightmare, and even just thinking about it kind of scares me. You know, uh, just before uh, Elijah, well, uh, Isaac was born, uh, Charlotte was at the park with the ladies group on Wednesday, and one of the ladies pointed out, "It's like, oh, who's that little boy playing beside the the road uh, over in Waitara Avenue?" And we, Charlotte sort of looked over, and he's wearing a blue top, and it's like, oh, okay, interesting, a blue top with the Sovereign Grace logo on the back. And Charlotte said, you've never seen 
a nearly full-term pregnant lady run so fast in your life, she just sprints out there to try and find him. You know, even just the other day, I was at the park, and I just didn't know where Elijah had gone, and I'm just searching around, there was this, like, one knowing mum who knew, like, it was my son, and she just, like, blank, like, stares at me and just goes, like, over there. You know, it's just like, there's your boy hiding around the corner. Um, or even that movie Lion. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the true story about this little five-year-old boy, Saru, who gets separated from his brother, falls asleep on a train, wakes up, doesn't know where he is, lost in India. Uh, we can't even watch it anymore because since we've had kids, because it's just like too like tear-jerking and makes us too sad. Like, turn it off, I can't watch it anymore. Because this is a scene of him just walking around the train platform or on the train, just going through all the carriages, calling out his uh, brother's name, Gudu, all the time, this tiny little boy, Gudu, Gudu, Gudu. He's lost completely. Now, this is not a case of negligence. You know, they've come with the entire spiritual community. It was a safer way to travel. And the practice was generally men and women would travel separately in separate groups. And so one parent could easily assume, wow, he's with uh, Mary, clearly. And Mary thinking, he's with Joseph. And it's likely they've stopped for the evening when they realize the boy is nowhere to be found. And so we read on in our story. After three days... They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It takes three whole days before they find Jesus in the temple complex. Uh, This was a large area, about 450 by 300 meters in size with multiple buildings. And it's likely that Jesus was seated in a synagogue within the temple grounds. Now, it was normal for a rabbi to be seated with students all around him who would learn by asking questions. That was the style at the time. And yet differently, rather than a rabbi with many students, Jesus is seated amongst the rabbis, listening, learning, and asking them questions. And Luke says they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. You know, that word in Luke and Acts is used only four times and always in association with the miraculous works of God. You see, God had given Jesus at 12 years of age spectacular insight and understanding through the Holy Spirit. In many ways, a fulfillment of Isaiah 11:2 that says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so we read on in verse 48 of our story, it says the following. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mary must have had so many emotions in this moment. There's the joy and relief of finding your son and yet confusion at the scene before her. Jesus with the rabbis, what's going on? Which quickly turns into anger. How could you do this to your father and I? You see, 12 years had passed since Simeon's word about a sword piercing her heart. And yet already in a way, that prophecy was beginning to be fulfilled. And these next words are precious, church. Because these next words are the first recorded words of Jesus. Read with me, verse 49. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 
Jesus answers with two very simple questions. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must? Didn't you know that it is necessary for me to be in my father's house? Don't you know that as the promised Messiah, I must give myself to communing with and learning about my father in heaven? These are striking words. For the first time in the Bible, a person is referring to God as my father. You know, prior to this instance, God had been of occasion referred to as our father, meaning the father of Israel as a nation, but never personally as my father. Just as the angel Gabriel had spoken to Mary nearly 13 years earlier that he shall be called son of the most high, Jesus was the divine son of God. And Mary is so focused in this moment on her hurt that she's forgotten who her son is. And Jesus, at only 12 years of age, is crystal clear about who he is. He is the Messiah, son of the most high. See, Jesus is saying that as the son of the most high, the Messiah, his relationship with God is so close and takes such priority that it should be obvious where he is. And this is yet another beautiful thing we see about the boy King Jesus. It's not just that he had come to experience life in every way like us, but that he is also, even as a man, united with his father in heaven. See, it's possible to have someone uh, or an advocate who is incredibly empathetic, incredibly filled with understanding, but with no power or influence whatsoever. You know, it reminds me in some ways of my next-door neighbor's dog, uh, the Forbes's dog, Trixie. Trixie is, I reckon, less than two kilos, a chihuahua, uh, with a really big bark. Oh, man, she defends them like nothing else. Anytime we stray anywhere near that yard, she's barking, barking, barking. But I reckon with a bit of a run-up, I could kick that dog about 10 meters. (laughs) Great advocacy, great empathy but not much power. Not so with Jesus. Jesus is the divine son with the ear of God most high. Now Jesus even now is showing the intimacy he enjoys with his father, the closeness which should have made his whereabouts obvious to everyone. You know, if you're here and you're a Christian, Jesus empathizes with you in your situation and represents you, not to anyone, but directly to God Most High. Now, I've been thinking about this this week. You know, if that is true, why is it that we're so slow to come to Him in prayer? If Jesus really does understand us in our weakness, really understands what it's like to be tempted and, and to struggle, Why are we so slow and so prayerless so often? You see, in this boy king, we continue to see our perfect advocate, completely like us and full of empathy for us, full of wisdom and understanding and joined to our Father in heaven, our perfect advocate. And that's point number two, his relationship with his father. But more than that, point number three, his life of submission. 
You see, despite the glory of all Jesus said to his parents in this moment, they could not understand what on earth he was talking about. Read with me verse 51. It says the following. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, I'm sure Mary would have smiled as she recounted these events. And despite her inability to understand them at the time, she had come to appreciate that her son was in fact the Lord. You know, the passage says that Jesus willingly submitted himself to his parents from this time onwards. And he returned home to continue his training as a carpenter. You know, the next 18 years of Jesus' life likely continued on in this exact same way. Serving alongside his family in a rural backwater, in anonymity. At the same time, though, growing in wisdom, in stature, and in favor. Friends, this wasn't just an attitude he embraced towards his parents, but this was actually emblematic of his whole life. You know, Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples to pray, would say the following in Matthew 6. He would say, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, Jesus taught his disciples to seek above all else God's will and not their own. And this is exactly how Jesus would go on to live, submitting his own will completely to that of his Father. Again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says the following in Matthew 26, and going a little further, further, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, in verse 42, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. You know, indeed, it is Jesus' humble submission to his Father's will that would ultimately make him into the perfect advocate for us. You know, his heart of loving submission led him to the cross, led him to bear our sins and made a way for us to be welcomed into the very family of God. More a heart of loving, a heart of trusting submission towards God is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. You know, Luke, uh, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 It says that Jesus said to everyone who was standing with him at the time, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, we live in a culture that says following your desires free from any restraints is authentic living. But Jesus shows us that it is a life of submission to God that is authentic living. You know, just like a fish jumping out of a stream, crying out, freedom, baby, I'm alive. Well, not for long. You're trapped and soon you'll be dead. You were made for the stream. We were made for God. We were made for relationship with him, for submission to his will. His will is our stream. And we're only free when we're swimming according to the current his word provides. Difficult question I've been thinking about this week for us church is this. How am I going in fostering the submissive heart of Christ? It's so easy to have a rights mentality. I deserve. I deserve to be respected. I deserve to be served. I deserve rest. I deserve to relax. I deserve to be warm. I deserve to indulge just a little. 
It's so easy to find yourself not living for the kingdom of God, but for the kingdom of self. And Jesus says that his way is one of every day denying ourselves to follow him. You see, he's the perfect advocate to help us on the path of submission to God because this is how he lived. This is the way he's shown us. Well, friends, in closing, from time to time in life, it's easy to feel completely alone. It's easy to feel like no one understands, no one gets it, no one's on my side. And yet what a wonderful advocate we have in Jesus. He fully experienced what it means to be one of us. And so he's filled with empathy for our weakness. He lived a life of perfect unity with his Father and intercedes for us in our time of need. And he purchased a place for us in his life of submission and modeled the way for all who would come after him. Well, as we close, just a brief word of application before I pray for us. Now, if you're here today and you're not following Jesus, I just want to encourage you a little bit. Like a fish out of water, you might feel free, but you're slowly suffocating. You see, all of us sense that we have something of a purpose and meaning to our lives. And that purpose and that meaning is to be found in Jesus. Make him your advocate today. Trust in his cross. Deny yourself and follow him. If that's you, I would love to talk to you. Um, The person who invited you along, I'm sure, would love to talk with you. We're a community who loves Jesus and loves pointing people to Jesus. Come and chat to someone. It would be our joy. But for the rest of us, this sole passage about our Lord Jesus as a boy is precious, isn't it? What a truly amazing advocate we have in him. And I think the right response is what we're going to do in a moment, which is to sing his praise. Would you pray with me? Lord God, how can we do anything but stand in awe of you? This morning, as we've examined the life of Jesus, just as a boy, we're filled with thankfulness for what this cost him. The way in which he laid it all down to embrace us in all of our weaknesses that he could then advocate for us before you. Look, God, you are a God of mercy. You're a God of unspeakable grace. We pray that every day you keep helping us to look up and keep staring at this marvelous, this wonderful King. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.